Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. I've entitled uh, morning's message, uh, Antichus and the Antichrist. And one of our goals of uh, teaching through Daniel on Sunday and then the book of Revelation on Wednesday is to see and to show that you really cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you have a pretty good grasp of the book of Daniel. Um, This is going to become exceedingly clear this morning in ways, if you're going through this for the first time, uh, where we have what I like to call foreshadows of events that have been uh, so that we will have faith of future events. And the case in point this morning is that of the Antichrist that is going to come, who hasn't come yet, but there's sort of a prototype, a foreshadowing of a man named Antioch Epiphanes, who pretty much, as we're going to see this morning, is going to duplicate what's about to happen during the middle of the tribulation period called the abomination of desolation. It has happened once before. So with that little bit of a background, let's dive into where Paul was reading um, chapter 8, verse 9 through 14. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, the east, and towards the glorious land, Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all of this, and he prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking with another holy one and said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For two thousand, three hundred days, then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. All right, just real short background so that um, what we're zeroing in on this morning is the second and third dynasties. So if you go back in your mind to the image that we had in in, um, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, saw this image that represented um, the world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Grecian, under Alexander the Great, then the Roman, and then this one in the future that's still to to come. So we have to have that much of an understanding. Now, in Daniel 2, it was a metallic image. But when we got last week of Daniel 7, we pretty much gave the same Bible study that we did in Daniel 2, but instead of using a metallic image, it was four brutal beasts, a lion, a bear, and a leopard, you remember. And, um, you know, the why the two different analogies? My guess is that man looks at his empires uh, through wealth, gold, silver, so on and so forth. I think chapter 7 is more the Lord's perspective on the world empires that have dominated the world. They were brutal. They were to be feared. Um, they were in conquest mode. And um, they, these are the four countries that have maintained, uh, not maintained, but have conquered the world at one time. The one thing they have in common is that they come and they go and they're replaced. And in some cases, two of them in particular, in one night. So as we get into this this morning, let's go back to uh, verse 1. And what we're viewing in on here, and let me remind you that when we started um, the book of Daniel, chapter 1 was in Hebrew, Daniel 2.4 through chapter 7.28 was written in the Aramaic, the original language of Syria, and the world language of these four great empires, 
With the beginning of chapter 8 now, where we are right now, the book goes back and reverts back to the Hebrew. So in the original writings, 2 through 7 would have been in Aramaic, but 12, 8 through 12 is going back to um, the Hebrew language. Now, the vision of chapter 8 is going to zero in on two of these empires, sort of like a microscope coming down, give us more information. They're going to be the Medo-Persian, represented by a ram, and then a male goat that's going to be uh, represented as Alexander the Great. And uh, this is the vision we find here in verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So if we're in the third year of Belshazzar, we're still in the Babylonian Empire. And um, so we're pretty close to Babylon falling to the Medo-Persian Empire because, you know, Belshazzar was the one who, who saw the writing on the wall. And that same night, his kingdom was divided. That's what the, the writing on the wall said. And it was going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. The last verse of chapter 439 says, That very night Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, as we get into these two nations, the Medes and the Persians, uh, we're going to discover that one is going to become more prominent than the other. So reading now in verse 2, I saw in the vision, and so happened, while I was looking, I was in Shushan, now we're in Persia, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ula, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and there beside the river was a ram. The ram had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no beast could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his his will. So here we have a picture of uh, the ram, and it's described here with two horns, uh, the identity, if you go to verse 20, we'll sneak ahead just a little bit. The ram that you saw and the two horns are the kings of Medo and Persia. So one of the points, again, I want to talk about, a little, little rabbit trail here. There is symbolism in the Bible. There is symbolism in the book of Revelation. There is symbolism right here. and um, But it is always explained. So when people say, well, you know, don't study the Bible, it's full of symbolism, you'll never understand it. Well, that's simply not true. The Bible always explains it. And as I said in my prayer earlier, if you're a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord says, I'm holding back nothing. A master doesn't tell his servant everything, but a friend does a friend. Your best friend you know pretty well, and they will tell you things that nobody else will. Why? Because they're friends. So there's... The idea of revelation means to reveal. And um, we find that the male goat here is described in a little bit different terms. We're sort of taking that microscope and finding out a little bit more about it. It was given over to Darius the Mede. So we read here, the higher one came up last. In other words, the horn representing Meda came up first. The general's name was Gobius. He's the guy that destroyed Babylon. He was the one who diverted the river so that they could go under the walls. Uh, He took the kingdom at, um, Darius took the kingdom at 62. Uh, And he he took the empire to uh, its highest peak. The ram then says that his two horns, one became more prominent than the other, And it's a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire with the Persians now becoming more of a power 
than the Medes, even though they're both together. So, as we look at verses 1 through 4, we're in the Hebrew language. We're told that the, um, the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire, but the additional information is that the Persians are going to become more powerful, thus one horn being longer than the other. Let's look at verses 5 through 8, which is given to us. Let's sneak ahead and peek. Um, verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and the little horn that is between his eyes is the king, which is Alexander the Great. So again, verses 5 through 9 is symbolic, but again, in the same chapter, telling us exactly what is consistent with the rest of the book of Daniel, verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, And a goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, and he attacked the ram, and he broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in its place, four notable ones came up toward the four wings of heaven. Well, the male goat here is none other than Alexander the Great probably the greatest military genius the world has ever known. He died at the age of 32 in tears because there was simply no more places to conquer. He had conquered the the whole world, and that was all he knew what to do. And at 32, he dies. Uh, Historians tell us who gets the empire, and his words were, give it to the strong. So when we read here of the four notable, um, there was one large horn and it was broken and in its place four notable ones came up towards the four winds of the heaven. He had conquered the known world. Uh, When Alexander died, his empire was divided among four men, which correspond to the four heads of the panther in chapter 7. Now I want you to go back to chapter 7. Let's turn a page back and look at verse 6. And uh, here, Alexander is being mentioned. In verse 6, it says, After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, that would be Alexander, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to him. Now this is one and the same. What we're reading in Uh, Daniel 7, verse 6, is the same thing that we're reading in 8, 8 of Daniel. The four generals um, that, this is all history, that's so spot on (laughs) and so accurate that it has bothered people who have a problem with the Bible being the word of God. They say it's got to be written after the fact, when we can prove it was written at actual time. Um, but the, the four generals that we have in view here, and the empire de- being divided, Cassander, this guy married Alexander's sister, he took the European section, Macedonia and Greece. Uh, Lysimachus, he took uh, the greater part of a- Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and then Seleucus, he took Asia, and the eastern part of the empire, except for Egypt, Ptolemy took Egypt and North Africa. So as you look back at the world and current events, we're talking about world empires, how they came. And um, we find here that we're giving detail about these generals. And now that Daniel has uh, had this vision beginning with verses 
9 through 12, and we'll, we'll stop and talk about the little horn. And uh, let's just read verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Out of question is out of what of out of what horn? Well, one of these four generals. In this case, it's Seleucus, who was over Syria, and it tells us that um, that this little horn uh, goes. I don't want to take 10 yet because I want to do a little rabbit trail on that one too. It just says it goes towards the glorious land. Um, the little horn here of chapter of this chapter, catch this, is not the same as described in the previous chapter 7. In chapter 7, the little horn is a reference to the future Antichrist. This little horn is broken off of one of the generals of Alexandria, and this guy's name is Seleucus, and he's over Syria. Is everybody tracking with me so far? So off of his horn, off of Seleucus's horn, is going to rise another little horn out of the fourth kingdom. Here the little horn comes out of the third kingdom, but in chapter 7 it came out of the fourth kingdom. So we're not talking about the future Antichrist here. This little horn is historical. In other words, past tense, he's already lived. While the little horn of chapter 7 is to be revealed in the future. The little horn being presently considered came out of Syria. And like I said, um, uh, Seleucid's dynasty. His name, Antioch Epiphanes. And I struggled and I think, Mary, what do you think? Should we call this Bible study? I think I had an epiphany. She liked it, but I knew we couldn't go with it, but I, I got to let it out anyway. So, and, But his name is Antioch Epiphanes. He, he was the son of Antiochus the Great. He is sometimes called Epiphanes, the madman, and he was another very determined leader. Now, in all these world empires, there's an aspect that's often left out, but it is a very much a part of why there's wars and um, why people want to be kings and dominant and be number one, all the above. And a lot of it is spiritual. So when I read verse 10, it grew up against the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and some of it stars to the ground and trampled them. We're talking about a spiritual dimension now that is now heavenly. And to give more clarity to what I just said, I want you to turn the page to chapter 10. And I'm afraid we're woefully um, unequipped when it becomes to the reality of this other realm that we're told to keep up our the shield of faith, so it'll quench the fiery darts of the devil. You know, the devil's always after you one way or the other. You know, he's called the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes we think about it, sometimes we don't. But the reality is there's a real war that is taking place in the heavens. Revelation 12, uh, Michael and his angels fought against his, his angels. There's warfare that goes on in your life, in my life, because of spiritual warfare. Now, Daniel was used to praying to the Lord and have the Lord talk to him. But if you look at the first couple of verses of chapter 10, Daniel had a prayer request and um, he went for the appointed time and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. But there wasn't any answer coming from heaven. And he was in mourning and fasting for three full weeks. So for 21 days, here's Daniel. And I, I get convicted every time I read something like this because he prays about something. Remember Paul prayed three times? He was used to the Lord getting, getting answers about the thorn in his flesh. Well, he was used to getting answers. And the Lord wasn't answering him until he finally said, no, Paul, I'm not going to answer that prayer. In my 
strength, your, in your weakness, my strength is made strong. So he finally got his prayer answered. It wasn't what it wanted, <laughs> but at least it was answered. Daniel isn't eating. He's in mourning for three full weeks. Why? Lord, I ask you a question. You always give me the answer, and it's not coming. Well, why isn't it coming is the question. And the answer is what we just read in verse 10 of chapter 8, that this little horn, Antioch Epiphanes, is probably a demon-possessed guy, and uh, he is involved in the spiritual realm. And so let's skip down to verse 10 of chapter 10. We read, Then suddenly a hand touched me and made me tremble on my knees on the palm of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. The Lord heard you the first time. And I have come because of your words. Now what's going on here? We read in the next verse, it says in 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. So here, here it is. Daniel's praying. And the Lord sends an angel, go answer his prayer. But he runs into a heavyweight demonic angel who has the title of the kingdom of Persia. And Daniel's question to his prayer isn't going to be answered. He withstood me 21 days. We got angel wars going on for 21 days so that Daniel doesn't get this message. What do I think the message is? This book that we're reading and the visions and its interpretations and just how important it really is. But then Michael. Now there's only three angels that are mentioned in the Bible. This heavyweight that could get past uh, the demon from the kingdom of Persia. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. These three are mentioned in the Bible. But then Michael showed up, one of the chief princes, and he came to help me, for I have been left alone there with the king of Persia. Are you guys catching all this? I mean, it's pretty weird, right? But the reality is, it was held up because of spiritual warfare in that dimension. Go to verse 20. The message is given, and now in verse 20, this is what Michael says, Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? Now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against against these and these matters except Michael, your prince. So this is way (laughs) um, stuff that we give very little thought to. But the reality is that one of our prayers, Lord, is lead us out into temptation. Deliver us from the evil. It's actually the evil one. Deliver us from evil. Should be a part that you need to be aware that you're a target simply because you're a Christian. And the more vocal you are and the more adamant you are about your faith and sharing it with others, the more of an annoyance you become to the other side. Make sense? That's what's, okay, let's go back to our verse. And I didn't want to just skip over verse 10 because Antioch Epiphanes, I believe, it was a demon-possessed man. And um, he, uh, he's fighting against the host of heaven. Verse 11, he even exalts himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice is taken away and the place of the sanctuary is cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifice, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. In 11 and 12, Antioch Epiphanes was uh, devoted to Jupiter, to the god Jupiter. And he hated the Jews more than you could imagine, as much as Hitler did. And um, he thought of himself actually, actually as an incarnation of the god Jupiter. 
He chose for himself the title Epiphanes, which means God manifested. And what he did in 175 BC, Antiochus came to the throne and he made an attack on Jerusalem. It was against him that the Maccabeans were raised up in Judea. And let me just back up. The reason the uh, the Maccabean re- revolt, some of you have heard about it, I'll explain it more in a second, uh, was raised up in Judah. Anti-Semitic to the core, he tried to exterminate the Jews. He placed an image of Jupiter in the Holy of Holies. All right, are you beginning to connect the dots now to the future Antichrist? Here's a guy named Antioch Epiphanes who does his own version of the abomination of desolation by going into the Holy of Holies, placing a temple, uh, 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 an object of Jupiter, uh, in its place, and then on top of that, he poured swine broth over the holy vessels. And um, this is called the abomination of desolation, and why the conversation begins is how long is it going to take to clean up the mess that Antioch Epiphany has just made by defiling the temple? The Holy of Holies has been defiled. How long is it going to take? That, that, this is the next question. So we read here um, in verse 12 um, that the Lord is actually allowing this to happen. Because of the transgression, an army was given power to the horn, and the daily sacrifice was cast down. In other words, you know, there was the morning prayers and offerings. And then the evening ones, and this all stopped. When Antioch Epiphanes attacked and killed many Jews, and he sets up Jupiter and then pours swine fluid over over the whole thing. Well, of course, verse 13 and 14 now comes up the question as the holy ones are speaking to one another, verse 13 and 14. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, well, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, otherwise known as the abomination of desolation? Uh, The giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. All right. You know that from time to time I like to point out false doctrine, um, cults. And through this one verse that I just read, um, uh, a cult was started. And this is why it's dangerous for Christians to set dates. Now, it's okay to set the date for the first coming of the Lord to the day because Daniel tells us. It's okay to set dates for the second coming of Christ because Daniel tells us in Daniel 12. What it's not okay to do is where Jesus said concerning the rapture, no man knows the day or the hour, only my father. And only then will he pull the trigger. And I've been sharing this as I think it through, that our Lord is so loving and compassionate and patient that he's just really waiting um, for that last one who's going to make up that fullness of the Gentiles, and then we're out of here at the rapture, and then the great tribulation is going to begin. And he's, he's just sort of watching people's heart. Are they going to make it? Not going to make it? Okay, that's it. No more. I'm drawing the line right here. Come home church. But what can happen is a seven-day Adventist, um, they interpret the... Uh, they, they interpret this verse 14 at 2,300 days. Uh, they take that scripture out of context. One day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. They took it to the uh, one day equaling one year. So taking that as the interpretation, the seven-day Adventism grew out of the second great awakening in which in this verse was given the day-year interpretation The date of Christ's second coming was set for the year, and it was October 22nd, 
I didn't know this till this morning. I wanted to know the exact date. So I talked to my girlfriend, Siri, on, on the phone, and she told me. <laughs> October 22nd, 1844, the leader of the group, his name is William Miller. His followers were called Millerites, okay? And they, on October 22nd, 1844, all put on robes, went and stood on a hill, and they were that was their time. Because William Miller um, and his followers understood the sanctuary to be the earth which would be cleansed at his coming. Now, the thing is, William Miller was a sincere Baptist preacher, but he's badly mistaken with this interpretation. The day-year interpretation was a fragile and insecure foundation for the th- any theory of prophecy, and history has demonstrated it to be false. Now, let me just stop here and say that um, um, Ellen G. White became the leader of the Seventh-day Adventist, and she had many prophecies, and none of them came true. Uh, They believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Um, They believe... um, that uh, you can only worship on Saturday, and if you don't, you're not saved. I could go on and on and on. But from time to time, I think it's necessary because my grandmother came out of Seventh-day Adventists. I don't believe I would be in ministry or uh, doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't the prayers of my grandma Shula. I believe that with my whole heart. And the Lord spoke to her, and my other grandma the Lord gave the gift of dreams and visions. Now, if you would come up to me and say, you've had a dream or vision, I would say, great. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Maybe you ate too much pizza last night, I don't know. But when it's your grandma, it's a different story. Because grandma can look you square in the eyes, and you can tell if grandma's messing with you or not. My grandma saw the second, my, on the Crandall side, saw the second coming of the Lord Twice. My other grandma was such a godly woman. She read her Bible every day. My dad says we just grew up singing hymns every night. And so the point here is in places that are even off the wall doctrinally, just like we studied in Revelation, there are true believers that are in there. And I believe me being in ministry and saved is a result of my grandma's birth. She was the godliest woman uh, I've ever known. But she came out of the seven-day Adventist religion. Now, and however, in the 235 days after being taken literally uh, for a 24-hour day, so now we're going back, the, the question here is how long, and it says for 2,300 days. Now we're just talking a literal 2,300 days, which comes out to be somewhere between six and seven years. And finally, uh, it was during this period of time that the Jewish priest, his name is Judas Maccabeus, they called him the hammer. He drove out the Syrian army, at which time the temple was cleansed and rededicated it after its pollution. This cleansing celebrated is called the Feast of Lights. You can find it in John 10, verse 22. We read, and it was at Jerusalem at the Feast of the Dedication, sometimes known also as the Feast of Lights. Um, And it was winter. That's what John 10 says. This was one of the holy days celebrated at the time of Christ, which is still remembered by the Jews. It is a feast not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. Why? Because when you get to the book of Malachi, And between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, we call it the 400 silent years. Why? Because there was no prophecy. God wasn't speaking. It wasn't until John the Baptist showed up. This is 175 B.C. So this festival in the Maccabean Revolt, where we call this today, we call this Hanukkah. Jews will say, Happy Hanukkah. Uh, We say Merry Christmas. And uh, so on and so forth. But uh, Hanukkah came about as a result of this, and it's referred to as the Feast of Lights. 
Uh, Hanukkah is one of the Jewish holidays not mentioned in the Bible. The story of how Hanukkah came to be contained in the book is in First and Second Maccabees. Now, there is books, First and Second Maccabees, but they're not part of what I would consider divinely inspired. You'll find them in a Roman Catholic Bible, but you won't find them in this Bible right here. There's 66 books in this Bible written by 40 authors over 1,500 years of time. But having said that, there are some accurate things that happened in the book of Maccabees that are historically accurate. Divinely inspired? No. Historically accurate? Yes. And it gives us information there Um, a small band of Jewish fighters who liberated the land of Israel from the Syrian Greeks who occupied it under the reign of Antioch Epiphanes. The Syrian Greeks sought to impose their Hellenistic culture, which many of the Jews found attractive. And by 167 B.C., Antioch intensified his campaign by defiling the temple in Jerusalem and banned Jewish practice. The Maccabeans led by five sons of the priest, Matthias, especially Judah, waged a campaign that culminated in the cleaning of the rededication of the temple. Did everybody follow that? So what we have is Antioch Epiphanes defiling it. Two angels saying, how long is it going to take to, to make things right? The answer is 2,300 days, and that's when the Maccabean revolt took place. Some of you heard about the miracle that took place with the oil. They only had one day of oil, but it lasted for eight. It's part of the tradition of Hanukkah. So, now you know where Hanukkah came from. Aren't you glad? <laughs> so when you talk to your Jewish friends and say, Happy Hanukkah, you'll actually know what you're talking about. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Now it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me Uh, one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the bank of the Ul-I, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid, and I fell on my face. And he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me, and he stood up upright, and he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen, this is important, in the latter time of the indignation. The indignation is another word for the great tribulation. For the appointed time it shall be done. So here now... When we say we want to connect dots between Daniel and Revelation, everything we just shared about Antioch Epiphanes is simply a foreshadow of something that's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. And um, this blows my mind because it is so spot on of what the Antichrist is going to do. Gabriel, in the explanation that follows, will make it clear that Antioch Epiphanes is but a picture of the coming Antichrist. For at the time of the end shall be the the vision. Notice that it is for the time of the end, not the end of time. Nowhere in the Bible are we to talk about the end of time. The time of the end locates the complete fulfillment of this prophecy in the period which our Lord Jesus Christ called the Great Tribulation. The man referred to is the Antichrist, also called the man of sin, and the little horn of chapter 7. So, we're talking about, in these verses, we read about the little horn here, in verse 9, that's Antioch Epiphanes. But now we're back in chapter 7, talking about the Antichrist in the future. Everybody still with me? Good, I'll keep reading that. This prophecy goes beyond the immediate future, and is projected into the distant future, even in our day, it's still unfulfilled. Antioch is merely a shadow of the other little horn who will come at the end of the times of the Gentiles, which is made abundantly clear by the verse 
um, the last day term. So in the middle of this, Gabriel is showing, and why this is encouraging to me, it reminds me of um, um, the Lord using Elijah. When Elijah does his three-and-a-half-year ministry, one of the things that he does is cause it not to rain for three-and-a-half years. And you go, wow, that's heavy. Has that ever happened before? And the answer is yes, by the same guy. During King Ahab's time. Ahab is not going to rain until I say so. How long was that? Three and a half years. So here we have another picture. And this is what it is. Why does the Lord give it to us? Because he wants your faith to be increased in this book. And just how detailed and precise and how accurate it is. So that when the Lord says there's coming a period of time that's so terrible, you don't want any of your friends going to be around during that time. So this is a real faith builder of what is going to be because all of this is facts of history. Right spot on in every single one of them. So Daniel, let's just turn the page to Daniel 9, where we'll be next week, and Daniel talks about it. Daniel 29, verse 27 um, Well, let's go back to verse 26 because it talks about Jesus being crucified for your sins. It says the Messiah will be executed. The Hebrew word karat, but not for himself. Who did Jesus die for? He died for Dwight. He died for you, and but not for himself. So here we're told the Messiah is going to be destroyed. And the people of the prince who is to come is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Well, what army destroyed Jerusalem, the Romans. But then it identifies this prince here, and the people of the prince who is to come is in the future tense. There's a princess going to come that's going to be a part of this old, revived Roman emperor. We talked about that last week. The sanctuary will be destroyed. Jesus talked about this in Luke 19. Uh, That day was April 6, 32 A.D., And exactly 38 years later, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Just like it says here in this verse. And then it says, in verse 27, then he, the he goes back to the prince who is to come, who is the Antichrist. He's going to make a covenant or a peace treaty for a seven-year period of time with Israel. But in the end of the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he will bring an end to the offering and uh, the wings of abomination shall be made desolate. Now here, Daniel, in next week's study, is talking about what we just read in chapter eight about this event in the, in the latter times that uh, Antioch Epiphanes did, but it was just a picture of what is going to be. In the very next chapter, Daniel reaffirms, yeah, there's going to become a world leader out of the old revived Roman Empire, and he's going to commit the abomination of desolations. Daniel talked about it in Daniel 9, 27. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about it. Jesus is reaffirming. Forget all the critics. You can have all... The archaeological geniuses in the world say, we don't believe the book of Daniel. Well, guess what? Jesus did. (laughs) And I'll take the words of Jesus over any archaeologist any day of the week. Good place for an amen. So in verse 15, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, one of the few places in the Bible where there's parentheses, whosoever reads, let him understand. Do you see, unless you go chapter by chapter and verse by verse, that you can get off track like the Millerites did and say, what's this big deal with the 2,300 days? Unless you go through it in a chronological order and tie it into what it really really means, well, that was fulfilled by the cleansing of the temple. It's a fact of history. So even Jesus says... He's reaffirming, but make sure you understand it. How do you understand it? By studying it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. 
I want a good amen after that one. Come on, I'm Dave Hawking now. I want a good amen. All right, David would be proud. So Daniel talked about it. Jesus reaffirmed it. Now the Apostle Paul, speaking to young Christians, turned to 2 Thessalonians 2, and I realize I'm going over territory that we've been covering, but I'm not. We're just teaching through the Bible. Who's being repetitive here? The Lord and the Holy Spirit, because he wants us to get this down. The other thing I'll point out here is don't ever, ever think that this is too much over the head of anybody, young or old. These were Christians. Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks, and he was teaching this stuff. So we read in Second Thessalonians 2, um, verse 2, he doesn't want anybody to be troubled either by spirit or word or by letter. What happened between chapter the first letter to the Thessalonians, somebody wrote another letter. And they contradicted the things that Paul had taught them. And so now he's telling them, look, I don't want you guys to be shook up. So I'm going to go back and remind you of my first letter. So now he's, I don't want you to be upset either by spirit or word by letter, as though the day of Christ had come. The day of Christ is another way of saying the day of the Lord. And um, the um, great tribulation. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day can't come unless the falling away comes first. And um, the son of perdition is revealed, who will will eventually exalt himself above all that is called God, so that he's worshipped. And he goes to the temple of God and showing himself that he is God. And that is almost hilarious. Don't you guys remember this? (laughs) Verse 5, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And then he talks about the restraining force. But I don't have time for that. That's more of an in-depth study in the book of, of, uh, of um, Thessalonica. So Daniel talked about this event. Uh, Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about this event called the abomination of def- de- uh, desolation. Back to Daniel. And let's pick up the interpretation, verse 20, of the ram. So we've already read this, but we'll read it again. Who is the ram? The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Medes and the Persians. Verse 21, what is the interpretation of the male goat? The male goat is the kingdom of Greece, Alexander the Great. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. For as the broken horn, and as for the broken horn, and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nations, but not with its power. The it there is a reference to Alexander the Great. And basically all we're reading here is these four generals were no Alexander the Great. Okay? So they're great but not as great as Alexander the Great. I was curious about this um, because this is during the time of uh, a little bit um, before the time of Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. And so we got the movie, and Judy and I sat down and watched four hours of Cleopatra because she's not Egyptian. Do you know that? She comes from the family of uh, Seleucus out of Syria. But she was born in Alexandria. And in it, whether or not, I don't know if this is true or not, they had this crystal tomb and there was Alexander the Great. And I find out um, in the movie, of course, I'm going to get myself in trouble. I'm getting too sidetracked here. In the movie, they don't marry, but they have a son. And um, um, but history, when you study history, Cleopatra actually did marry. Um, see, I told you I shouldn't have done this. What's his name? <laughs> Mark Anthony. They really got married. And um, it's I, I wanted 
to see the movie because it goes along with this period of time during those four, 400 silent years. All right, the final interpretation is the interpretation of the, the little horn. Now, here again, boy, for years I um, did not connect 22 and 23. And I have taught in the past, this is a good lesson for us all to learn, that the more you study, you're going to find, well, I just learned that I said that wrong, and I need to correct myself. Or that we shall always remain teachable. I spent more time going through 23, 24, and 25 than I did in rewriting all my notes yesterday. I went through six different commentaries to see if I could find anybody who could agree with me. And even McGee wouldn't agree with me. And then, if he doesn't, then I'm... Because I've always taught, because it's so... When I just read it, I, I had Judy read this. I said, honey, come here. Just read 23, 24, 25. You tell me who they're talking about. She read it. She said, the Antichrist. And I said, no. She said, yes, it is. It's plain as day, it's the Antichrist. I said, no. I said, I went online. I Googled other commentators, and they all say the same thing. So I'm here to tell you this morning that the little horn in reference 23, 24, and 25 is not the future Antichrist. If you read carefully, which I did not, it says that when the latter times of their kingdoms, all right, now we've got to connect that with verse 22. And uh, in verse 22, we're talking about the kingdoms of the four generals of Alexander. So in the latter time of their kingdoms, when their transgressions has reached their fullness, a king shall arise. Well, now we're talking about Antioch Epiphanes again. But I've got to tell you, I've always taught this as the Antichrist. Now, don't be too hard on me, because I think you would too. <laughs> it says, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, it tells us that the Antichrist rep- receives his power from none other than the devil. So I identified, just made the connection. He shall destroy fearfully. He will prosper and thrive. He will destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning and deceit, he shall prosper in his hand, and he will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many in in their prosperity, and he shall even rise against the princes of princes. Well, that's... Him leading, you know, the armies of the world in, in, the, in, the, in the battle of Armageddon, and so it's a no-brainer for me. This is the way that this is what it's referring to, but it's not. Uh, they, these were generals. I I even got out the old G- German uh, um, commentaries, and just one book could be that thick, and they'll write forty pages on two verses. And so even digging into all these guys, they all agree. They give um, who's really being referred to as being Antioch Epiphanes and his deeds in quite a bit of detail. But he shall be broken and not without hands. Well, that's what Jesus did. He just spoke at the Battle of Armageddon, and that was pretty much the end of the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, So... The little horn is Antioch Epiphanes of the line of Seleucus that took Syria. The only adequate explanation of this verse and the facts of history is that this man was demon-possessed. In this respect, he is also a picture of the coming Antichrist. The Lord Jesus made reference to him when he said, For there shall be false Christs and false prophets. They'll show great signs and wonders insomuch that if possible, they would even deceive the very elect. Uh, In verse 24, the holy place refers to Israel. Um, Refers to Israel. Antioch Epiphany seems almost um, unbelievable in his cruelty. He was as bad as Hitler. However, he's only a mere shadow in comparison to the Antichrist who is coming, of whom it is said, it is given him unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Turn with me to Revelation 13, and you can see where 
It's the Holy Spirit that wants to make such a direct connection between these, these two individuals. Revelation 13, verse 7, he was granted to make war with the saints and, and to overcome them. So the similarities are off, off the chart. Antichus is but a type of this king who is coming, and he will do four things which Antiochus did and, his, and in the same style. Number one, he will cause craft to prosper in his hand. We are told in Revelation 13, verse 17, um, and if, as long as you're there, look at it. No one can buy or sell except the one who has the mark or the name of the beast and the number of his name. He will control the economy with a vengeance. Number three, he will magnify himself in his heart. Look at Revelation 13, 5, where it says that he was given a a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, just like Antioch Epiphanes. Number three, by peace he shall destroy many. He comes in as a lamb, but goes out like a lion. Remember, he comes in on a white horse, Revelation chapter 6, has a peace treaty according to Daniel 9 verse 27, and but then breaks it because nobody's going to be worshipped except him. So there's the similarity in Revelation. By peace he will destroy many. That's Revelation 6. And 4, he will rise against the prince of princes. You see, he will oppose and fight against Christ. And one of the marks of Antichrist and the first piece in Revelation 13 is that he is against Christ. Brings us to the end of our chapter as we make our way through the scriptures. And I want to leave it with a personal application. The last verse is verse 27. What kind of a day would you have if you had a day like Daniel had in this vision? Well, it tells us, I, Daniel, fainted, and I was sick for days. Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business. In other words, he was down and out for the count. He was overwhelmed by what is going to happen. And I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. The physical and psychological effect on this vision upon Daniel was devastating. At this point, God was beginning to mesh the times of the Gentiles into the history of the nation of Israel. That was the thing that puzzled Daniel at the first, and it still puzzles a great many people today. How can God mesh his program with Israel into his program for the Gentiles in the world? And today, to further complicate it, there's this, his program with the church. The answer is quite simple, of course. In our day, God is calling out people to his name. We label this group of people the church. What then is concluded, and the church is removed from the earth at the rapture, then he will again turn his purpose and program back to Israel and the Gentile nations. Remember, he owes Israel seven years. And so this is God's wisdom. But here's my closing question. Question is, does God's word and prophecy affect you to the point of such deep distress like Daniel that it affects you and you go, what in the world can I do about it? Does it move you at all? Does it bring you to the place where you're faint and you're sick? You look at this stuff and you go, this is really going to happen? And I have loved ones and we're sitting on the edge of time ready to enter into that and I'm not telling my friends and I say I love them. And we have this information and um, and we hesitate to bring it up because we don't want people to think we're crazy or foolish. Hard place to say amen, but what? It's true. One of, one of my main points, I was telling Judy earlier this week, is that um, we see the world on the verge of entering what Jesus talked about. This is how he described it. There's coming a time that's called the Great Tribulation, such as never been, at the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days are shortened, no flesh will be saved. But the 
for the elect's sake those days would be shortened. Simple closing question. Are you ready? Are you ready? And if not, if you're not ready and if you're not afraid, this is my closing words to you this morning. Be afraid. Be very afraid. And if you're not, then you didn't understand the Bible study this morning. I know this is not a typical Bible study, but it's a true one. And the effect that it had on the writer was that he fainted and he was sick for many days because of the implications of what was happening and what's going to happen. If it shakes you up a little bit this morning, then good. And if you're not saved, again, uh, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Gang, this stuff is so spot on to say that it's not going to happen. I wouldn't bet my odds against it. And whatever's holding you back from accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, put that pride aside. Not worth it. Because this is going to happen. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not my word. So it's a good day to get saved, because if you get saved today, you can get baptized this afternoon. (laughs) Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and just how incredibly accurate and detailed it is. I pray for those being baptized today, Lord, that you bless them, and this would be a very special day for them. And I pray for the rest of the fellowship that they just show up just to encourage those that are believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and trusting you and you only for their salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.